Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 25, The Beetle at Bay. Harry's question was answered the very next morning. When Hermione's daily prophet arrived, she smoothed it out, gazed for a moment at the front page, and gave a yelp that caused everyone in the vicinity to stare. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Before we start today's episode, a couple of exciting announcements. We are going to be in St. Paul, Minnesota on April 13th. We are going to be in Indianapolis with John Green on April 15th. We will be in Holyoke, Massachusetts on May 8th, and we will be in London on June 18th. You can find tickets to all of these events at harrypottersacredtext.com. Vanessa, it's time for a story. What have you got for us? So my mother is the keeper of the memories in our family. She is the obsessive photographer. She paid someone several years ago to scan all of our photographs. She, for example, in her day book in the 80s, would write down what each of her children was wearing so that when the photos got developed, she would be able to tell by the outfits what date it was taken. Oh, my God. But my mother, surprisingly, was not a prolific videographer. And in fact, we only have one home video that I am aware of of my entire childhood. And that is when I was really, like, not joking at all, I was at my prime. I was eight years old, no front teeth, big glasses. And in this video, I was wearing my favorite outfit, which my mother eventually trashed because I wore it out. It was a matching red shorts and shirt combo with white sponged hearts on it. 
Anyway, I looked fantastic. And in this video, it's Mother's Day and all of my cousins are sort of running around. And my grandmother is interviewing me and she says, Nessica, what day is it? And I look at her and I go, St. Patrick's Day. And she goes, no, what day is it? And you've never seen an eight-year-old look like such a smug jerk in your life as when I look at her and go, my birthday. And she says, no, come on, what day is it? And I say, Christmas. And then she was like, come on, Vanessa. And I was like, I guess I don't know. And I run off. In this video, like watching it now, I just want to strangle adorable eight-year-old me because like for whatever reason, it meant a lot to my grandmother that we honor her on Mother's Day. And as an eight-year-old, I just couldn't stand how needy that was. And so I defied her at every turn. I would not give an inch. And looking back, it just would have been so easy to be like, it's Mother's Day, happy Mother's Day, and run off. And instead, I engaged in this like prolonged, awkward conversation simply for the pleasure of defying a like really sweet need of my grandmother's. And I'm interested in that question of when is defiance important, like Harry defying Umbridge with the DA, which I think we could all agree is a really important defiance. And when is it us trying to maintain a sense of identity that's entirely wrapped up in ego? Ugh, that is such a good question. And it reveals so much about our relationships to authority and what are we afraid of and what are we empowered by. And there's actually a lot of defiance in this chapter that we're going to get into in a minute. But before we dig into all of that, Vanessa, it's time for a 30-second recap. Dun, dun, dun. And you're going first. I am. So let me gear up the timer. Here we go. Three, two, one. Things are pretty bad at Hogwarts, and Harry is like, I don't even know why I'm here except for the DA. Great. It's time for Cho and Harry's date. They go on their date in Hogsmeade, and Cho wants to talk about, like, her feelings, and Harry is, like, 15-year-old boy, cannot compute. Valentine's Day is very awkward. People are making out nearby. He's like, I got to go meet with Hermione. He goes and he meets with Hermione, and it turns out that— <gasps> Rita Skeeter is there, and also so is Luna. And sh Hermione is trying to blackmail Rita into telling Harry's side of the story in Luna's dad's magazine. Boom. Okay. That's everything that matters. <laughs> On your mark. Get set. Go. Headline news. Ten people have escaped from Azkaban. Not good, including Bellatrix Lestrange. No one in the school seems to care at first except the teachers who are definitely worried. Hagrid also still has, like, fresh cuts but doesn't want to talk about the fact that he's bleeding everywhere. Um, Occlumency lessons are continuing. Disaster. Harry's like, it feels like all I'm doing is more of the same. I keep walking down this corridor and I want to open this door. Um, and then he has a little fight with Ron because Ron's like, ugh, Quidditch is so hard. And Harry's like, you don't even know you get to play Quidditch. And then the date. And Neville's getting really good at the DA. Yeah, he is only Hermione is faster than him now. Which is like saying no one is faster. <laughs> exactly. She doesn't count. She doesn't count. She's too good. So Casper, we find out pretty early in the chapter that Harry has like started to think of the DA as the one form of defiance that he can engage in in this completely altered Hogwarts. Right. All sorts of things have been shut off from him. Obviously, he can't play Quidditch. He's not going down to Hagrid's hut anymore because Hagrid has said, like, you can't come. It's too risky. 
Dumbledore has completely cut himself off. So, like, this is the only place where he can really feel like his life has some meaning, right? He's not having contact with Sirius. There's just nothing that helps him feel like he's doing anything to solve the problems in the world. And just, like, remember how much his life has changed since year three, where he had private lessons with Lupin, and now he's, like, having private lessons with Snape. Everything that gave him a sense of joy at Hogwarts is just, like, gone. I feel like friendships go through this, jobs go through this, where you're like, why am I even in this? This has just been drudgery for forever. I'm talking about us. Yeah. (laughs) This is a lead. (laughs) What I was going to say, though, I don't know if you've ever had this, but like I've had this where you're in a job and like there are times when everything feels meaningful and exciting and you're connected. And there are other times when it's just really awful. And frankly, I would go and check my bank balance every day and my student loan repayments to make myself feel like, okay, at least I'm making progress on this. And I feel like that's where Harry is at in a more cosmically meaningful way. But if you have one thing, you just hold on to that so tightly. And even that, it's hard to schedule with all of the other things that are happening around him and the cracking down on all sorts of privileges that used to exist. We learn in this chapter, for example, that teachers are not allowed to communicate with their students outside of classroom-related things. So you can see how if there were walls that were closing in, that's what's happening in this chapter. I feel like this might be one of the biggest lessons that I've learned from this project. But it's also the way that one negative thing spirals into another. Yes. So the fact that Harry, Fred, and George can't be on the Quidditch team anymore means that the Quidditch team isn't as good, which means that there needs to be more practice, which means that the DA meetings are harder to schedule. Maybe this is on my mind too much because it's so much in the news with, like, productive conversations finally happening in this country around criminal justice reform. Because the ways that it's like you get punished for being poor and so you're in jail for longer while waiting for bail and while you're waiting for bail, you know, your partner can't take care of your kid. Like the way that we just consistently pile on the most vulnerable people. And And then if you're sentenced, you don't get to vote, which means right. Right. Which means that you can't change the system. Right. And I'm like, God, it's just the power of these tiny laws. These decrees keep going up and they're so specific. And yet their implications are so far reaching. So what I think we start to see, especially as this news headline comes out and we see Bellatrix Lestrange's picture on the front page, you see immediately in Neville the reaction of defiance that I think we're talking about. Because he has been working hard, absolutely. He's a committed founding member of the DA. But in this chapter, we learn just how much he accelerates and how quickly. And we know that, you know, Neville has really struggled with his magical ability. So for him to go from, you know, middling, let's say, in the class to becoming really one of the top charmers speaks to how much this means to him. And I think There's defiance at a grand level, right? Like you might defy the enemy, like in a war situation. But defiance feels to me inherently personal in some way that somehow I feel belittled or I feel somehow attacked or or repressed. And so it is because of my dignity that I'm going to defy you specifically. And I, I feel like that's what's happening for Neville and the DA. But I think that Neville has enough freedom that defiance can be a positive thing for him, right? And I think we see this difference between Harry's emotional state with how he feels right now 
And we don't know how Neville is feeling, but we know how his actions are being borne out in the world. Right. And Harry is just trauma after trauma after trauma. And Umbridge is going after him specifically and is carving into his body and is specifically going after Quidditch because of him. It is targeted injustice. And at a certain point, like exhaustion is the only thing that takes over. Whereas for Neville, obviously, he has this huge trauma with his parents and he is in constant conversation with that. And I'm not trying to take away from his suffering, but it's not a daily indignity and attack. So Neville still potentially has the energy to defy. Okay, this is fascinating to me. And it actually helps me understand what happens at the end of the chapter. Because reading it this time, I was kind of thrown for a loop by how manipulative Hermione is. She's terrible. She's she's like, let me get a journalist and the publisher's daughter together with you without you knowing what this meeting is about and now tell your story of trauma to a national public. By the way, I'm blackmailing Rita. (laughs) That is illegal. So many levels. But what's interesting to me is how little resistance Harry offers. Like, Mm. he is not even energized by the prospect of telling the truth at this point, which for the previous book, he has been desperate to do and no one was listening to him. Now he's been given this chance and he's like, okay, fine. And I think in part because the experience that he has in the tea room with Cho, where he thinks, okay, I'm going to have a nice date. Like, I'm going to go on a Valentine's Day outing with this girl that I like. And then that turns into another public humiliation. It's just exactly what you were saying, this layering of just one pressure after another to the point where he has nothing left at the end of the chapter to resist or defy Hermione's kind of manipulation. Well, or maybe he wouldn't be defying Hermione's manipulation, but it would like excite him that he gets to defy fudge, right? Like, finally, I'll speak up. Like, there's just a certain point where exhaustion is what takes over. He's just like limping across the the end of the chapter. Yeah, Yeah. defiance is a privilege, right? Mm. And like, it's just not something that everybody has the opportunity to engage in. I mean, I think we see that in my opening story too. If I didn't have a kind and loving grandmother, if I was scared of her in any way, Mm. I would not have acted that way. And it was unkind and ungenerous what I was doing, but I had the relational capacity to defy my grandmother in this moment, which if you're scared, that just becomes a totally different equation. And we see that with Trelawney and Hagrid. I mean, both of them are walking on their own through the campus or through the corridors, right? We learn in this chapter that Trelawney's walking along corridors in public a lot more, smelling like sherry. Here are people who have no way in which they can find a way to defy. And so they are just being stamped on by this experience of you know, by by an authority coming in and putting them on probation. But that actually makes me think Haggard is actually engaging in a huge defiance. Oh, that's interesting. Right? And so maybe he's like, I'm not going to defy in these ways because I've got a troll in the forest. (laughs) Nobody look over here. These cuts, they're old. (laughs) That's so interesting. The idea of like that we can defy in certain parts of our life, but maybe not everywhere. Well, and I also think, like, if you are truly defiant in one thing, to some extent, it's the best strategy to be incredibly, like, clean cut in all other parts of your life so that it can really stick on the one thing you're defiant on. He's just being super strategic in his defiance. And I also see with Hagrid, I'm trying to make more meaning of what you said about defiance being personal. And it was definitely personal, right, with me and my grandmother. I just, like, it was too needy. I found it embarrassing and undignified in her, and I couldn't engage in it. 
And we definitely see how personal the DA is for Harry, how personal Neville's defiance is. Right. And how personal Hagrid's defiance is, right? It is about his brother. And I wonder if maybe why it needs to be personal is because when it's personal, it's so clear. Like in order to defy something, there needs to be a clarity. Okay, this is fascinating to me because now that we're talking about it, I'm seeing the seeds of defiance being pocketed in very isolated places. We've got Hagrid with Grop in the forest. We've got the DA happening. We're going to see the twins in a really radical act of defiance later on, but, like, no one knows about it. Yeah, we, and they are obviously already working on absolutely. it. Absolutely. But, like, Harry doesn't know. We've got Lee Jordan, who we find out in this chapter, which I'd completely forgotten, having to do lines which show up on the back of his hand, just like Harry did, for telling Umbridge that she's talking about something other than her class, like, going against her own degree. Which is a huge defiance. Being Massive. Like, yeah, talking back to Umbridge. I... I'm in love with Lee Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> but so, and I can imagine that the staff, you know, we see them talking in twos and threes in the corridors. I'm just suddenly seeing the ways in which this system is not yet organized in a sort of battle of Hogwarts. We're all in it together to protect against this clear outside enemy. But everyone is defying in their own little ways. I mean, even Luna is saying, yes, I'm going to get my dad to publish your story, Harry, to get the word out. Well, and the DA is defiance twice, right? It's mm. under Umbridge's nose. But Molly and the rest of them have said, you're not old enough to be in the order. And they're like, fine, we'll start our own. Right. So they're defying everyone, the like, quote unquote, good guys and the quote unquote, bad guys by being like, we're going to take this into our own hands. Again, to your point about it being personal, that is the genius of Hermione's pitch in the hogshead. She makes it personal for every single person to risk the energy of defiance. You're not going to be able to study for your OWLs well. You're not going to be able to defend yourself against Voldemort, right? Like she is making sure to go around and make it personal for every single person. And the question is why? Because it doesn't have to be personal for me to show up to a march. It doesn't have, right? Like, So this was the thing that was happening in my head just now, was that I feel like this is the difference between rebellion and defiance. Like, rebellion is somehow social. There's a bigger thing to which we are all congregating towards, we're all contributing and, and joining. Defiance feels like it could be an individual. I don't know, obviously you can have a group of people that defy authority, but there's a choicefulness for each individual in a way that, like, a revolution or a rebellion feels like people can get sucked along by the wave of history or just what's happening outside your street window. So you join the march just to find out what it is as much as anything else. Well, and I think that that gets to the question that we started with at the beginning of this conversation, which is, so when is defiance bad? And it's when it's entirely personal and not at all political, maybe. When is defiance just about our own existential identity and sense of self rather than about actually having a positive impact on anything? Well, so this is interesting because there is a moment where Ron is very defiant, right? So Harry, Hermione and Ron are talking about Harry's occlumency lessons with Snape. And Harry's saying, well, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. In actual fact, it feels like I'm getting worse. And then Ron introduces this question of, well, maybe that's happening on purpose. Maybe Snape is trying to manipulate you to make you even more vulnerable to Voldemort. And Hermione's like, oh, for goodness sake, like, let's get over this because we know Snape is good. But Ron defies that. Like, he defies this agreement that Snape is safe and is like, but we don't know. He was a Death Eater. I'm not letting that go. Is that Ron trying to ingratiate himself with Harry? Is that Ron genuinely thinking, I really don't trust Snape because he's mean to me? I'm just curious, like, why is he defying this agreed conclusion that we should trust Snape even if we don't like him? 
Yeah. I mean, I just want to say the thing, which is that it's personal, right? He hates Snape. Right. And it's just like easier to think that people you hate are bad. I always, if I don't like someone, I want everybody to validate that they have objectively done something (laughs) wrong. As if social graces are ever objective. I'm like, right, this person sucks, right? Right? And I like want to like do a poll and I want it to be unanimous. Right. Because otherwise I don't have the moral authority to dislike the person and it's actually about me. And so Ron just wants Snape to be bad so he can hate him. Right. Like he doesn't want to complicate his experience experience of Snape. And we know Ron can't think two things at once. So I think he's just like, cannot compute good, but mean. Ron is defying Hermione in this moment, right? And is like staying against the narrative of Snape being good. But what's so interesting to me is that Hermione is not someone who's afraid of defiance. She's like started Spew. She started the DA. She's like openly confronting Umbridge in like this very strategic way. And yet she never even thinks about defying Dumbledore. And I'm wondering why you think that is, that, like, she is just, like, 100 percent, as soon as Dumbledore says something, lockstep. Well, I think in some ways the fact this happened just after the attack on Arthur Weasley is important. Because Mm. if this had happened just before then and Harry's starting to say, like, Dumbledore doesn't talk to me anymore, you know, there's this weird distance – I wonder if there would have been more hesitation from Hermione, but because he has facilitated their quick departure from Hogwarts under the eyes of Unbridge to Grimmauld Place and then their visit to St. Mungo's, I feel like that has kind of re-upped the like trust-a-meter in Dumbledore in some way. But I also feel like this is one of those situations where if you doubt Dumbledore, like what else do we have, right? Like this sometimes is how people talk about even their spiritual life, right? If if someone has grown up with a strong faith or cultural background and you start questioning the essentials, it can be frightening because if you question the essentials, like everything falls away and then who am I? What is my identity? What really matters? And there's this huge reconstruction project that has to happen with a new foundation. So I wonder if we can see that kind of pattern, especially in book seven, after some important events in book six, how are the trio going to defy or trust Dumbledore's guidance once they're on their own? Yeah. Dumbledore also brilliantly allows for some institutional defiance, which is something that we've talked about before, right? Like we think that Peeves is there as this like representation of constant defiance and he Hmm. allows all sorts of like exploding snap whatever nonsense to happen all the time. He has this like really dumb password system, which we know about, right? Like I think that Dumbledore has demonstrated his tolerance for a little defiance, which built more trust in someone like Hermione. But I also think that this is a sign that Dumbledore has become more of a cult leader than an engaged leader because there does need to be some trust building between Snape and Harry. And because Dumbledore is not facilitating that and instead just like, trust me, bye, won't look at you, Harry doesn't commit to learning occlumency in the way that he should. So I think that Dumbledore has been really successful at not having his loyal members of his movement defy him, but he isn't really investing in trust. That's not a great place to be where, like, I wouldn't feel great if my students, like, never partied and always behaved, but also never felt comfortable coming to me if they were, like, in acute distress, right? Like, they wouldn't be defying me, but I would rather them defy me a little and trust me a lot. Yeah, and it just takes me back to your story, the fact that you were willing to defy your grandmother so flagrantly, like, four times, in actual fact, is a sign of how much love and trust and and comfort that there was within that relationship. 
that actually there's there's some resilience within a healthy relationship for defiance in a way that we're really beginning to lose between the, the students and Dumbledore at this point. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Vanessa, let's talk about Valentine's Day because there's a super cute date, right? There's this lovely moment that Harry and Cho are walking. They're talking about Quidditch. And Harry's like, oh my gosh, it's much easier to talk to her than I thought. It's just like talking to Hermione and Ron. And like, this isn't so bad. And then they like go into a shop and they have a nice time. And And her hair is like up in a nice ponytail. And everything is great. And then she's like, let's go to have a cup of tea. And he's never been to this particular tea room. So then... Things start going south. Yeah. Harry has been last minute pulled into a meeting by Hermione. And so he's like, um, so like, do you mind going to meet Hermione Granger later? Just cluelessly not thinking about how this might come across. And then Joe's like visibly upset by this and is like, well, fine, if you want to go talk to Hermione Granger. And then she says, well, Roger Davis asked me out once. And is clearly like one-upping Harry to be like, well, you've got options. So do I. And then this is the total clincher. Then she's like, I came in here with Cedric last year and the story is done. Guys, like we know this is not going to go anywhere. But here's the moment of defiance. Harry does not want to talk about Cedric, right? He's like, shut it down. Why do you always talk about Cedric? And then Cho says this, I need to talk about it. 
And I was so moved by that line this time. I just felt her her strength. And like, yes, she's interested in Harry romantically. And that sits next to the fact that she wants someone to process this grief with and the fact that like no one will talk about it. You know, we don't know what her parents are like, whether they're even witches and wizards or whether they don't even know that their daughter's boyfriend was killed. So Harry's the only person that she can have this conversation with. And then he shuts it down. I just really respected Cho in that moment. And I think that we hear this with people who are grieving all the time, that nobody wants to bring it up if they don't want to talk about it anymore. Or after a couple of months, everybody sort of around them is like expected that they've moved on. And it's like, no, it's been three months, six months, two years. I still miss my whoever, right? right? Like it doesn't just go away and that there aren't great spaces for people to talk about that. And it can become emotionally wearing on the people who are, you know, sitting next to their friends in grief. But I do think that we have to get better about like checking in on one another's grief. And I know that you weren't saying this, but like, I don't think that's Harry's job. I'm like so proud of Cho for demanding what she needs. I think she's demanding it from the wrong person. Harry is allowed to not want to talk about it. And again, I think this is an institutional Hogwarts problem. Like there should be a counselor that she can go to and talk to about this. And like she's not going in like having this conversation with Flitwick. And so it breaks my heart that she needs to get to a point of defiance where she's like, you were my last hope for this conversation. Mm -hmm. And she only brings it up when it's like, well, this has already gone south. Like I might as well say the thing that's on my heart. You're already going to go and talk to Hermione. And like, don't you understand? I need this. I'm proud of both of them, her for defying the moment and asking for what she needs and Harry for shutting it down and being like, I am not the person who can give it to you. Well, okay, so let me tread carefully in challenging this, because to some extent, Harry has talked extensively about what's happened with the people he trusts. And I completely agree that he has absolutely every right to shut this down whenever and wherever he wants to. But I am seeing a role for facilitators within Hogwarts in a way that is maybe even more clear than ever. Like, just imagine if there was a third person to help Snape and Harry have their lessons, right? Just to, like, mediate that super intense situation. Just imagine if there was a grief circle or, like, dinner party-esque organization where people can just get together over a meal without having to be surrounded by Valentine's Day dates and an unfamiliar environment, and, like, someone, like, ruining your tea. Yeah. <laughs> like, that dumb thing keeps, like, throwing confetti into his tea. Sometimes the magical world overdoes it. Yeah. It's like, I don't want glitter in my hair. Right. Just because it's Valentine's Day. <laughs> right. I mean, sometimes the muggle world overdoes Valentine's Day. That's for Abolish real. Valentine's Day. <laughs> also, Hermione, not cool. I understand that she, like, needs Harry for this meeting. I feel like she should prime Harry for how poorly this is going to go with Cho. Harry doesn't even know why Hermione is demanding his attention. And because of that, he can't explain to Cho. So it seems like he's just like at the beck and call of Hermione, which is ironically Rita's fault that everybody thinks that Hermione and Harry are romantically into each other. Oh, full circle. So, Vanessa, our spiritual practice this week is a continuation of Florilegia. So both of us have chosen a sparklet from this chapter, and we're going to put them in conversation with one another to try and find if there's a deeper meaning that we can discover when we put them next to one another. So what did you choose as your sparklet 
this chapter. Whatever you say, blood's important. What about you? So I chose, I'm supposed to do this for free. (laughs) Tell me, what made this sparkle for you? Why did you choose this sentence? Well, so Hagrid says this, and it's so interesting because to some extent, we are very against this idea, right? When Hermione gets called a mudblood, it's like, that is a disgusting word. It doesn't matter where you come from. That is something that Slytherins think and like white supremacists. And here he's talking about family and that Harry's life would have been different and his life would have been different if they weren't orphans. So I just think it's interesting that Hagrid is somebody who's like, blood doesn't matter. Here is saying blood's important. Well, and it strikes me that he's just identified himself as an orphan. And in the next sentence is saying blood is important because, of course, this is his half-brother. Yeah. And then there's also just, like, the biological thing. So, like, this just amused me out of context, which is, like, he's dripping in blood because he's, like, has so many cuts all over his body. And he's, like, blood's important as he, like, loses a lot of blood. What about you, Casper? There are so many reasons to despise Rita. This is not one of them. I mean, we all know about the struggles of print journalism and the fact that writers are paid less and less and less. And at this point, she's essentially being forced to do work for free. I don't know. There's something about the way that she says it. And and the text is actually italicized for those last two words. I'm supposed to do this for free. So she doesn't even at this point expect that the answer is going to be no, right, that she's going to be paid. She just wants to make sure that they know that they're doing something wrong at this point. And there's there's sort of a moral victory for Rita Skeeter in it, which just really struck me. I had never thought a redeeming thought about Rita Skeeter, and here I did. So let's put these two sparklets next to each other. You'll read yours first. I'll read mine straight after. Blood's important. I'm supposed to do this for free? Oh, my goodness. I'm immediately thinking of how we do favors for our family, (laughs) right? Like, there is actually a lot of work that we do for the people we love that we would never do voluntarily for people we didn't know. And sometimes we can get really resentful about that for good reason, right? Like, because our love is unending, people sometimes draw on that love in very practical ways where our energy and our capacity is not unending, So that in some way, we have to be the ones to stop asking our blood relatives or the the people we love because they may never tell us to stop, right? Because our, our love is unending. Oh, that's a nice spin on that. I was just making a list of all the things I do that I resent doing. I'm like, yeah, why do I do that? Let's have the sentences one more time before you share, Vanessa. What was yours? Blood's important. I'm supposed to do this for free? Like, this is just so literal, but what it's reminding me of is that we donate blood for free. Mm. Yeah, and just, like, the moments, like, after Hurricane Katrina, where we saw just, like, lines and lines of people wanting to give blood, and it's just this feeling of, like, wanting to give of our actual bodies Mm. when we don't know what else to do. And, like, after shootings, people really line up, and it's these, like, terrible, terrible moments of destruction and crisis that make us realize that, like, we will literally give of ourselves. That is so moving to me because I'm I'm suddenly remembering that it's in those crisis moments we are actually reminded of our interdependence. And there is something in the question or in the sparklet that I chose, which is very self-oriented, right? Like, I want to get paid for my work, when in actual fact, everything that makes society work is our interdependence and our needing to rely on one another. And 
giving blood is such an instinctual response that we have because we suddenly remember, like, my well-being is directly connected to yours, and this has made it visible, and so much of the time it's actually invisible. So I'm, I, I love that. That's beautiful. What about these sentences in the other way? Okay, so here's mine. I'm supposed to do this for free. Blood's important. I mean, so now I heard the more conversational, like a family fighting about what you were talking about, right? Like, yeah. I'm supposed to do this for free? Well, it's your brother, right? Right. <laughs> I also just, like, that idea makes me feel very defiant as someone who is incredibly close to some family members and, like, really not close to other family members. And I think that so many of us struggle with our families of origin and— I really hate the idea that blood's important other than on the donating blood level. And I guess the other thing that it's making me think about is people who donate blood for money because they are, like, so living on the margins that they are literally selling their body to make ends meet. I've gone to a very dark place. <laughs> I mean, I'm also just suddenly remembering the way in which blood relationships show up in this chapter, right? We're seeing students whose families were tortured or killed by the people released from Azkaban. And one or two of them come up to Harry and say, I understand a little bit how it must be for you. And it is horrible. So just seeing the ways in which we cannot escape our blood relatives. Like, yes, we can change our names. Yes, we can move away. Yes, we can never think of them again. But like, even if you don't want it to be important, the world is going to tell you it's important. Well, and genetics, right? And this is something that we are learning more and more about with all the, like, 23andMe tests that people can do. There, There's a new book out by Danny Shapiro about the fact that she just, like, did a random kit test and, like, found out that her father wasn't her father, right? <sighs> wow. And just, like, the secrets that you were allowed to keep, but now that, like, your blood can literally show. Right. And sometimes it can be a beautiful thing. Like, I have a friend who's adopted, did the DNA test, and he's, you know, through that found people who are, like, maybe sixth cousin twice removed. And then recently had a cousin who was only three steps removed, which for most of us who are connected to our biological family seems far away. But for him was this, like, incredibly meaningful moment of being one step closer to his biological family, as much as he loves and is part of his adopted family, like there was still meaning in some unexplainable, even irrational way in the way that he describes it. Like, I don't know why this is meaningful, but somehow it is. I think that both of these sentences have made me think about the tension between like money doesn't matter and money super matters and blood doesn't, doesn't matter, matter and yeah. it super matters, yeah, 100%. right? That's what I love about this practice, especially with Florilegia, is like, Every quote that we choose, we think of it for one reason, and then another quote can just illustrate a completely different interpretation of it. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. 
Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's time to hear a voicemail from one of our listeners, and this week it's from Andy Phillips. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, Ariana. This is Andy calling from Malden, Massachusetts. It took me a long six months to catch up with you guys, but uh, I'm listening with you as you as you post them, and I'm very excited to be joining you on this journey through the Harry Potter books. Your recent episode on honesty really hit me in the feels. It really resonated with me and my journey of coming out. I grew up in a very conservative Christian family, And I mean, my parents always said, you can tell us anything. Um, I want you to feel like you can always be honest with us. But somewhere deep down, I always knew that there was a limit to that. And so when I came out in college, it was not well received at all by any of my family members. Um, And as a result, we have a very tenuous relationship now. And so... I I knew that I had to build up the courage to come out for myself and for, you know, being able to live my authentic life. But the atmosphere in which I needed to come out didn't always feel safe. And my story is unfortunately not um, an uncommon one these days with coming out in its, you know, many forms. But I'm curious what you guys think about the responsibility of others to create a safe space in order for people to be honest. Harry throughout this entire book is, is carrying a lot of big emotions that obviously need to come out in some way or or another. And they kind of come bursting out in his confrontation with Dumbledore. And I think that despite everyone's best efforts, he didn't, really have an environment that he felt safe in letting those emotions out. So yeah, I'm curious of your reflections and love the show. Thank you. Andy, thank you so much for that beautiful voicemail. And I spend a lot of time in Medford, Massachusetts, which is right near you. I mean, this just like dovetails so nicely, coincidentally, after the conversation we've been having about what it is that we owe people as far as acceptance. And I obviously feel as though we owe everybody acceptance about their gender identity and sexual orientation and, 
Yet, I also don't think it's our responsibility to create a safe space for everybody in all circumstances. For example, I'm sure there are things that my aunt would really like to say to me, and I have no compunction around like saying to her, I don't want to hear anything you have to say, and blocking her from my email as she tries to say them to me. And like those seem like two obvious poles of this question of like, of course, we should accept each other for like who we love and how we express our gender identity. And of course, we should not allow abusive people into our lives. But like the the gray area is very confusing to me. Do I have to create a safe space for people who I like just sort of don't like? Probably. The only thing I would add, and Andy, I mean, you shared this just in your story, is that the world is not safe. And we can be as hospitable as we can and try and make it as as safe as it can be. But even in your experience, you know, you've felt the implications of it not being that way. One of my friends and colleagues, Jen Bailey, talks about moving from safe spaces to brave spaces because it acknowledges the risk that is inherent in either being who we are or saying what's true for us because we can't be assured that everywhere is going to be safe. And that's really stayed with me. Yeah, it's something that I've gotten more and more careful in my language as far as my students. I used to have like a sticker saying this is a safe space. And I was like, that's really just like not for me to decide. Mm. And so I tell my students, like, I try really hard to create a safe space for you to be your full selves Mm. in whatever that means. But God only knows I mess up. And so I don't. We all do. Yeah. And like, I don't know if you're going to feel safe in my apartment for any number of reasons. And I will like do my best. But there is a dog that is highly dangerous. (laughs) Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone in the pages of this chapter. Who are you going to bless this week? So I'm going to bless Rita. <gasps> Bold choice. Thank you. I was moved by like that whole scene, that similar moment. She is somebody who is currently living on the margins of society because she's being blackmailed by a 15-year-old. <laughs> like Hermione is the bad guy here. And I just think that Rita is defying Hermione in every way that she can and is maintaining her dignity in really hard times. And I just want to offer a blessing for anyone for whom they have to be living on the margins of the way that they would like to be living for any number of reasons. And usually it is not because you are a horrible person who's turning yourself into a beetle and like spying on children, but just because life circumstances, right? One out of three Americans are a paycheck away from not being able to pay their rent. And I just think that Rita is somebody who right now is finding herself really on the margins of society. And I just want to express my like profound empathy for that moment. So a blessing for anyone who is feeling really precarious and at risk. Casper, what about you? I'm going to bless Cho. We talked about, you know, that sense of urgency and, and isolation that she feels and the sense of needing to talk about her experience. But I also just want to bless her for like being disappointed in romance. You know, I think so many of us have had this situation where It's been like weeks, if not months, since they arranged to go on this date before Valentine's Day comes around. And if she's anything like me, like I dream up all these amazing stories of how it's going to be. And the actuality of what happens on the date is so disappointing. It's actually worse than she could have imagined. Like it's actively heartbreaking. And so, I, yeah, this blessing is for anyone who who had big hopes for something, whether it's a romantic partnership or a work project or just something in your life that you had seen being a big success and it's become this huge disappointment. 
and to know that like Cho, time will pass and this will fade into memory and new springs will come forth. So my blessings for Cho. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode. Come and join the hundreds of people supporting us on Patreon or leave us a review on iTunes. We love hearing your voicemails and we'll hope to see you at one of our live shows next week in California, as well as next month when Vanessa and Ariana are in Minneapolis and we'll all be in Indianapolis together with John Green. If you loved our conversation about Valentine's Day, you can check out our anti-Valentine, which is in our Hot and Bothered feed. Find our Hot and Bothered podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 26, Seen and Unforeseen, through the theme of Obligation. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Not Sorry Productions and executive produced by Ariana Nettleman with editing support from Ariana Martinez. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are a part of Night Vale Presents. This week's voicemails, thanks to Andy Phillips. We'd also like to thank Julia Argy, Maggie Needham, Danny Agan, and Stephanie Paulsell. Talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. Do you want to say, Vanessa, can you tell me a story? Vanessa, can you tell me a story? I am, <laughs> cookie. <laughs> I am cookie monster. I am cookie monster. <laughs>